Welcome to the MetaChurch Podcast. My name's Clayton, I'm the pastor here at MetaChurch, and my hope is that today's podcast finds you at the perfect time in your life that God uses it to inspire. Hey, MetaChurch, thank you so much for streaming with us today. If you're new with us, my name's Clayton, I'm the lead pastor here at Meta Church, and we are in this crazy time right now. Our venues are still closed, but we are streaming together and serving together. We are finding ways all the time to get involved in our community and make a difference in our city. We're also trying to bring encouraging content as often as we can, so make sure that you're following us online. Uh, we're on Facebook, we're also on Instagram. You can also go to metachurch.tv to stay updated and to watch uh, past series or past sermons. Here at MetaChurch, we're very simply a gathering of ordinary people who are living extraordinary lives as a part of the movement of Jesus. I know right now so many people are out of work, entire businesses are closing down. It is a hard, hard time. And yet in hard times, we see historically that is when the church has risen up to bring hope and peace and the true hope that comes from Jesus. This movement matters. And so if you are a part of this movement and you are still receiving income, please be doing your part to help fund this thing that's really impacting real people's lives. You can give in a couple ways. You can give online at metachurch.tv by hitting the give button, or the easiest way to give is by downloading the MetaChurch app. One of the best things about being the pastor here at MetaChurch is the unbelievable staff that I get to work with. They have so many different talents, and today we have a very special message. You guys know Noel as our worship pastor. He's helped create a, a culture uh, of worship through his music here, but he also has a gift in preaching, and there's something on his heart that he's been waiting to share with you guys. I can't wait for you to hear it. I hope that you guys enjoy the rest of the service. Well, hey, MetaChurch, we want to welcome you to another weekend of streaming online. And I just got to tell you guys, MetaChurch is so encouraged by how you've stuck with us over the last three months and continue to join us on the different platforms that we're streaming on. You're interacting with the posts that we're doing throughout the week. And let me just tell you that right now is a very unique time. It's probably the easiest time to invite someone to church. And so I want to encourage you to go ahead and hit that share button on the stream. You never know what life you could change in your friends list. If you're new to MetaChurch, my name is Noel and I am your worship pastor. But occasionally, Pastor Clayton will give me the opportunity to share my heart and maybe a little bit different of a style. A couple months ago in our Wonder Week series, Pastor Clayton asked if I would be willing to teach one of the weekends, and I, of course, said yes, and I was very grateful for that opportunity, but COVID hit, and it hit right on the weekend. We decided to close our venue, and so Pastor Clayton and I decided it might be better for him to kind of address that situation first, but now I'm here to go ahead and share that message with you today. If you'll remember on Wonder Week, we are actually looking at the seven days leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus and how he revealed himself in different ways to the people around him. On the weekend that I was scheduled to teach, we're going to look at Jesus as a rabbi, which just means teacher. And that is what Jesus did. He went around the countryside teaching all those who would listen. And after he ascended into heaven, his disciples continued that tradition and taught what he had taught. And that's continued on for the last 2000 years. So in light of looking at Jesus as a teacher, 
I'm calling this week's talk Masterclass. Will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we have an opportunity to learn more about you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to everyone that's listening today. God, reveal something new to them about you through the words that you've given me to share. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Now, when I say Jesus was a teacher, I'm sure that you made a natural connection to education, right? And on a social uh, streaming platform like what we're experiencing right now, there's probably a wide variety of points of views on what education is like. Like some of you started from kindergarten to your senior year in high school and have perfect attendance, straight A's. And then there were others of you who maybe didn't like school that much. It wasn't necessarily that you were bad at it, but you just couldn't wait to get out of it. Now you may be wondering where I stand on all this. And I have to tell you, uh, I really loved school. I mean, I must have loved school because after high school, I spent eight years in college and I never even got a degree. I didn't get an undergraduate degree. I didn't get a graduate degree. And I certainly did not get a PhD, which I did go to school long enough to receive. And in case you haven't figured it out, I am one of those that wasn't a huge fan of school. In fact, to this very day, I still have nightmares about coming to the end of a college semester and realizing that I haven't been to class one single time. And then I wake up feeling so relieved. Eight years in college, that is a long time. But to be fair to myself, the first five years I was getting a business management degree, but in reality, all I was doing was playing music and dropping classes. I got a little bit smarter at the end of those five years and decided, Noel, if you want to play music so much, maybe you should get a music degree. And so I auditioned for the School of Music at UTSA and I got in. Now, I wish I could say that my attendance got better. It didn't really, but I did enjoy my classes a lot more. I had some really wonderful professors that taught me all sorts of things like recording in a music studio. I got to learn about the progression of music throughout history. Most of these classes were geared towards teaching me or training me to teach or play professionally. And probably my favorite class, oddly enough, was music theory, which isn't most people's favorite class. It was amazing to me that over the course of time, many people had compiled a list of rules or laws that defined exactly how music worked, and all music falls under these laws. Now, it's up to us to figure out how to apply these laws of music into our degree plan. Uh, and application is always the hardest part of learning anything. This is where the rubber meets the road. This was never more clear to me than in a class that required us to have an end of semester music jury. And most of you are very blessed to have no idea what I'm talking about. But some of us that are watching have experienced this end of semester music jury. And what this is, is you go into a room and you have a panel of judges. And these are made up of professional musicians. I'm talking like San Antonio Symphony members, PhD holders, other professors in the school. And you go in front of them and you play a piece of prepared music that you worked on for the whole semester. And based off of this, off of this one performance, you receive a grade. Luckily, you didn't have to completely go through this process alone. Throughout the semester, you had a private instructor that would help you learn how to play this music. And I had 
just a really unique instructor. His name was Sumner Erickson, and he was this hippie from Austin. And I don't mean like how San Antonians will make the joke, like, oh, those hippies from Austin. Like, this guy was legitimately a hippie. He wore a tie-dye shirt to every uh, meeting we had. He had a handkerchief that he wore around his neck, and he put magnets inside of it because he was convinced that the magnets resonated with the natural vibrations of the earth, thus making him stronger. Now, I don't know if that was true or not. And eccentricities aside, Sumner was an amazing musician. I learned so much from him in the four semesters that he taught me. But there's one lesson that stood out from all the others. And I learned this in what we call a master class. And a master class is when an instructor has his entire group of students come together and he teaches them a broad concept, something that he or she wouldn't teach them on an individual level. And as I was sitting in this master class, uh, all the students started asking questions about their impending music jury, like, how are we going to be graded? How are we going to be judged? What were these judges looking for to see that we understood so we could get a better grade? And Sumner politely answered most of these questions. But with every answer came another question. Sumner would answer and someone would say, but what about this? Or, but what about that? And finally, Sumner just sat quietly after a question was asked. And instead of answering, he asked us a question back. He said, what doesn't matter? Is how you're going to be judged going to change the way you practice or perform at this jury? Well, the short answer is, yes, of course it would. I mean, who wouldn't prepare differently if they knew how they were going to be judged? But Sumner taught with a philosophy. He wanted to do more than teach us how to play notes on a page. He wanted to teach us how to play music. And there is quite a big difference. Like anyone at some level can learn how to play notes on an instrument. But when you can interpret music and play with emotion, you take a performance and change it into an experience. Summer boiled it down for us. He said, play with passion and play with purpose. And if we could do those two things, the rest would take care of itself. Now, I don't feel like the questions we were asking were silly because life isn't that what we all want to know. How are we being measured by the world around us? Just like in my master class, we all want some sort of metric to know how we're doing in life. I mean, everything in life has some sort of measurement, like your time on earth can be divided by decades, years, months, weeks, days. Like, you know, you're doing well in a job by getting a promotion or raise and You know you're doing poorly in a job if you get a demotion. I mean, even your car will tell you how far you can drive before you need to get gas. Metrics are not a bad thing. They can give us helpful information that can uh, help us improve our lives. Like when you go to a doctor and you get your blood pressure checked, there's a system of metrics that tell you whether you're in a healthy blood pressure range or a unhealthy blood pressure range. And based off of what you uh, hear back from the metrics, you can make changes in your diet and exercise to get to a healthy blood pressure level. Metrics can be extremely useful in our lives, but if we're not careful, metrics can turn into nothing more than checklists. And there's nothing wrong with checklists. But if my master class had taught me anything, it's that there has to be something more behind the checklist. Like, you can check all the boxes of having a good marriage, like being a good husband or a good wife. You can do your fair share of the dishes, do your fair share of the nighttime routine with the kids. But if your heart's not in it, then you're always going to fall short of that great marriage you're looking for. 
And we've all worked with people who are following the policy to get promoted at work, but aren't actually interested in bettering their organization. We can do this as a movement of Jesus. It seems like there's so many religious rules and regulations, but how do we get out of these checklists and truly live for something greater? Metrics are nothing new. In fact, the Jewish people lived by a system of metrics. It was called the law, and there was 613 of them. And this law held a very specific purpose for the Jewish people. And as comes with law, there was a law enforcement, if you will, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were kind of tasked with making sure everybody was doing the right things, following the law the right way. And so when Jesus came onto the scene in the New Testament and challenged some commonly held beliefs about this law, they had to do something about it. You have to realize that these Pharisees and Sadducees had already seen Jesus ride in on a donkey into Jerusalem, and he was lauded as Hosanna in the highest by the people around him. He had gone into the temple and flipped over the tax collector's table and kicked the tax collectors out of his father's house. He began to gain influence with the people. And if he gained influence with the people, that means the Pharisees and the Sadducees were losing influence with the people and something had to be done about it. So we're going to pick up the story in Matthew 22, verse 15. It says, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so these disciples of the Pharisees and these Herodians came out and they asked Jesus a seemingly simple question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? But it was a trap. And here's why it was a trap. The Pharisees, who only believed in their Jewish scriptures, thought they only owed money to God, their tithe, their 10%. And these Herodians, who were also Jewish people, were sympathetic and supportive of the local government. And so they thought you should pay taxes to Caesar. So no matter how Jesus answered, it seemed like he would be in a pickle, right? If he sided with the Pharisees and said, you don't owe taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians would come against him with the full force of the government. And if he sided with the Herodians and said, no, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Pharisees would come against him with the full force of the law. But Jesus saw through this. It says in verse 18, Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. I think Jesus did what any good teacher does with a complex question. He kind of brings it down to the lowest common denominator. He was saying, listen, Pharisees, you already know what your law says. You already know that you owe God your 10%, your tithe. But also look at this coin. This is the money in your land. Whose face is on this and whose inscription is on this? Well, it was Caesar's. And so he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. The Pharisees had nothing to say to this. And so they walked away. In verse 23, it says, that same day, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. 
Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? The Sadducees were taking their turn at trying to trap Jesus, and this time they were trying to trap him in his own teaching, because Jesus commonly taught the resurrection of the dead. And this was something that the Sadducees didn't believe because it wasn't directly spoken about in the Jewish scriptures. And so they asked him a question, whose wife would this woman be if she married seven different husbands? If there's a resurrection of the dead, whose wife is she in heaven? They thought they could trap him and then they could discredit him in his teaching. And if they could discredit him, then they could start making him lose influence. But Jesus answered them. He replied in verse 29, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given a marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus answers the first question they ask about whose wife will this woman be? And he simply says, there is no marriage in heaven. And he doesn't just say it because he believes it. He references their scripture. Uh, He says, we have a model of what we're going to be like in the angels. The angels are not married. And so some of you just heard that that are married and got really sad because you love your husband or wife so much and you can't imagine not spending eternity in heaven with them. And that's super sweet. And some of you got really excited that you're not going to be married in heaven anymore. And if that's you, we have classes for that. And we'll encourage you. I'm just joking. That's not true. But we have an example in the angels and they're not married. And so we're not going to be married. But then Jesus answers the actual question that was asked. And it was about his teaching of the resurrection of the dead. And he uses their scripture again. He says, have you not read, you Sadducees, you keepers of the law, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Three guys who have been dead for a very long time at this point. And then he continues with the scripture. He says, he is not the God of the dead, but the living. He puts them in the present tense. They're not dead. They're actually living. Your idea of what uh, death is is wrong. The body may die, but the soul, soul still lives. They were in error. They didn't know the scriptures or the power of God. The Sadducees left him. They had nothing to say to that. And so... They had to do something to trap Jesus. So far, they had presented him with these scenarios for him to answer, these questions for him to answer, but now they're going to change their approach. They're going to ask him something directly about the law. And so they send a lawyer to him, and verse 35 says, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This wasn't only a trap, it was kind of like a trick question because as long as the law had existed, nobody had been able to put an order of importance on the law and they had tried. And most people decided that it couldn't be done. And so I'm not convinced that this lawyer necessarily cared how Jesus answered. I think he cared to know if Jesus would answer it. Like, would Jesus have the audacity to answer this question that has gone unanswered for so long? The short answer is yes. He would have that audacity because he was God. But it's at this point that I believe that Jesus recognized something in his opposition 
that Sumner had recognized in us, his students in that master class, that they were getting lost in the checklist. It didn't matter how many questions he answered, there was always gonna be another question to follow it. He had to teach them something broad, just the way a teacher would do in a master class. And so Jesus replied to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Then he gave them a bonus answer. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This lawyer had only asked him what the greatest commandment was. And he answered it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But he follows it up with a second. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's really interesting because he ties these two things together. He doesn't put them sequentially. He doesn't say first, love the Lord, your God, and then love your neighbor. He says, love the Lord, your God. And the second is like it, like it, equal to it, tied to it. Love your neighbor. At Metachurch, we say it like this. You have to love God and love people. Jesus was taking the notes of their checklist and helping them see the bigger masterpiece that he was creating. If they could get this one teaching right, every law would be satisfied. Jesus really wanted them to take the knowledge that they had in their heads and make it truth in their hearts. And if they could do that, they could go from a checklist of laws into a lifestyle of love. Everyone that had surrounded Jesus that day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the crowds had unknowingly come to a masterclass of the greatest teacher that ever existed. You know, I could learn how to play all the notes and I could learn all the laws of music theory. But my private instructor, Sumner, showed me it all boils down to play with passion and play with purpose. And if I could do those two things, everything else will fall into line. Jesus says, you can have all the head knowledge of scripture and religion, but it's worth nothing if you can't take that knowledge from your head and make it truth in your heart. You have to love God and love people. You really have to decide how you see Jesus today. Like, was Jesus just some guy who said some good things over 2,000 years ago? Or is he truly the great rabbi, the teacher that we follow no matter what? Because if he's a teacher, that means he has something to teach us. And if we listen to that teaching, we have to learn it and we have to apply it. And application is always the hardest part of learning anything. Jesus told us to love God and to love people. And it's hard in our world and our culture because so many times we're taught to do the exact opposite. And listen, I know you're going through it and I've said this before and I'll say it again. I know you're going through it because I'm going through it. We at Metachurch are going through it. I know you've been hurt and I know you've been judged. I know you've been treated unfairly and not just by people you have like minimal interaction with, but oftentimes by the people you love most in your life. Jesus knows it too. In fact, he lived it. In much of his ministry, Jesus was being made to feel unwelcome. He's being ridiculed and threatened and overlooked, denied and betrayed. And still, he loved the people in this world enough to die on a cross for them. He showed them what love should look like as he hung on a cross. He took the individual notes of the law and he turned them into a symphony of salvation. So are you ready to give up that checklist that you've been living your life by? That checklist that makes you a performer of religion rather than a member of God's orchestra? 
I love how Pastor Clayton preaches this teaching of Jesus. He says that your vertical relationship with Jesus can only be as strong as your horizontal relationship with his children. So how do we love our neighbor as yourself? You give them the grace and the forgiveness that you've been given. You give up your right to be vindicated in certain situations. You forgive that person who's wronged you, who's spoken poorly of you behind your back, who spread those rumors. You forgive that person that completely uprooted your life. You pray for them. You choose not to pay back the evil that someone has done to you with the evil that you so desperately want to do to them. In every situation, you have to try to see the people around you, not by the sum total of their actions, but rather as children of God that he desperately wants to redeem. But if you're going to do that, you have to see yourself in a new light. I want you to make the change from being a victim to a victor. A change from being conquered to a conqueror through Jesus. From being an agent of condemnation to an agent of redemption. Because loving those around us is how we show our love for God. And if you can do that, you'll stop living for the checklist of religion and start living with purpose and passion for the kingdom of God. Will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're again just so grateful for Jesus. We're thankful for what he taught us. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us as we go throughout our days and our weeks, Father, how we can love those people around us as ourselves, God, because we know that when we love those around us, we are showing our love for you. God, we thank you for the incredible blessing that you've given us. Father, I pray that we would focus on the good and trust you for the stuff that's not going so well in our life. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your precious and holy name that we pray this. Amen. Metachurch, again, I want to thank you for joining us for today's service. Don't forget to be generous with your giving. There will be a link in the comments on Facebook or whatever platform you're watching on. We love you guys so much. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much for listening to the message today. If this was helpful to you and you want to help us get the word out, you can subscribe to this podcast. You can rate and review or share it with your friends. If you want to get connected further with what MetaChurch is doing, you can go online to metachurch.tv. There you can learn how to take next steps. You can learn where our different venues are at if you ever wanted to visit. And you can also give financially to help push this movement forward. Man, I love you guys and I hope you have a great rest of your day.